So about 115 years ago, in the year 1900, the field of physics had made some incredible strides forward. In fact, so much so that there were a group of physicists that believed they had nearly exhausted the entire discipline, that they have taken physics as far as it could possibly go. One prominent physicist, Lord Kelvin, was one of the keynote speakers at the annual assembly for the British Association for the Advancement of Science. Now, as you can imagine, it wasn't a very well-dressed crowd. It wasn't a very sociable crowd, but it was a brilliant crowd, a crowd filled with some of the brightest minds in our world. And while he walked up to the podium to address these brilliant people, he said this, which has now become an infamous statement. He said, there is nothing new to be discovered in physics now. All that remains is more and more precise measurement. Now, the reason that that is such an infamous statement is because just five years later, this guy showed up <laughs> and really stuck it to Lord Kelvin. He wrote a little paper on special relativity that changed everything they thought they knew for the previous 200 years since the apple fell on Newton's head. Einstein's work literally changed the way we view our world. It was a paradigm shift in the area of physics. A paradigm shift is a fundamental change in approach or a fundamental change in our underlying assumptions about something. So for 200 years, everyone was walking this direction. Einstein comes along, E equals MC squared, and all of a sudden, everybody's moving this direction. It was new information that gave us a better understanding of how our world works. It was a paradigm shift in the field of physics, and it changed the way that we address some of the most complicated problems in our world. Well, let me rephrase that. It changes the way they address some of the most complicated problems in our world. So today, we're going to look at another paradigm shift that's going to frame and solve a problem that's just as old as physics, a problem that has plagued humanity since the Garden of Eden. Jesus is going to take the idea that the more power, the more wealth, the more prestige, the more influence, the more talent you have— means that you have more resources to use for yourself, to serve yourself, and the more that others who are less than should serve you. He's going to take the idea that the greater among us should be served by the lesser, and he's going to shift the whole paradigm. He's going to flip it on its head. And through his humiliating example, he is going to show us how power, privilege, wealth, influence, and talent are really to be used in this new kingdom of God paradigm. But I have to warn you, just like E equals MC squared is an easy formula to memorize, but a really hard one to use, the paradigm shift that we're going to be talking about today is easy to understand, but incredibly difficult to live out. It's a vision for a lifestyle of service. It's a paradigm shift from a crown to an apron. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to John chapter 13. 
and we're going to walk through this together. So it's important you get it out. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. I want you to follow along with me this morning. We're starting in John chapter 13. While you're turning there, I'm just going to read the first couple verses, which really set the scene for us of what's happening. John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So John, the author here, gives us a couple pieces of context that really help us understand what's about to happen. The first is this. It's the Passover. Everybody is in Jerusalem. They're celebrating the Passover meal, but also that Jesus is about to be betrayed, and he's about to be crucified, and Jesus knows it. So it's important that we understand that as we read this story. The second thing, the second important piece of context that's essential for us to understand if we're really going to get what's happening here in this passage is love. Love is the motivation for everything that is about to happen in the next moments, in the next hours, in the next days. Jesus was motivated by an enduring and infinite love a pursuing love, a never-give-up love, a love that can never be exhausted, a redeeming love, a love that's willing to do whatever it takes to make right all that has gone wrong. It was a all-the-way-to-the-end love. So here, in the beginning of this Passover meal together, Jesus knows what's about to happen to him, And yet he is filled with this divine, supernatural love, and he's about to do something shocking. He's about to shift our paradigm. Verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water into a basin, And began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So you can imagine Jesus and his disciples sitting around a table, and they have one of those quiet, awkward moments, you know what I'm talking about, where you kind of look around the table, and you realize, they realize that there was nobody there or no one willing to do the customary foot washing. So they're all kind of willing to let this slide and move ahead with the meal anyway. But that awkward meter moved from like a three to an 11. When Jesus stands up, he takes off his shirt, he ties a towel around his waist, fills up a bowl with water, and begins washing the disciples' feet. The text seems to indicate that this happened in some kind of like stunned and uncomfortable silence until it got to Peter, and we'll talk about that in a second. But this was an incredibly shocking thing to do. I don't know if you know this, but feet are gross. <laughs> They're nasty. And let me tell you something. First century feet were much, much worse. None of these guys were spending 30 bucks to get their feet professionally groomed, okay? I don't know how they cut toenails back then. Maybe some kind of saw, but it wasn't pretty. 
There's no shoes, there's no socks, there's no good soap. They're walking around in the dirt, in animal stuff, every single day. I mean, these things would have been nasty. But you know what's more important to understand what's going on here than that feet are gross, which is important, is that this was an honor and shame culture. The most important thing in an honor and shame culture is your reputation, protecting your name, your dignity, saving face. These were the most important concerns of the time. Avoiding shame and acquiring honor was the cultural operating system. It's how everything worked. It's how you made sense of how people interacted with each other. And the people at this time, and still in some places of the world, are meticulous about keeping score in the honor and shame game. Think of it this way. Think of your honor and shame score sort of like your social credit rating. The higher the score, the more privilege and prestige you had, the less you were expected to do, and the more other people were expected to serve you. The lower your score, the more shame you had, the more you were expected to do, and the more you had to do to serve those around you. Let me tell you something about this social credit ranking of Jesus right now. When you take off your shirt, strap on a towel, and start washing feet, you set your score to zero. You go to the absolute bottom of the pit. This was the job for the lowest of the low in society, and no one was ever to wash another person's feet. Now, our culture might keep score in a little different way, but we still abide by this old paradigm. We still ascribe to this paradigm that the greater should be served by the lesser. But what's really shocking and really uncomfortable for the disciples, and even as I describe it here, I think you probably get a little taste, but it's really hard for us in this culture and this time to really understand just how incredible what Jesus is doing here. I think maybe the best example I've heard uh, would be that it's something like this, and I'm going to need your help with this, okay? I want you to think of a person, somebody that you really respect, somebody that's in, you see as being in a totally different class than you, somebody you look up to that's honored, has more power, more wealth, more status, more fame than you do, and you'd be honored if they came to your house, but you'd also be really stressed out. So do you have a person in your mind? Okay, it can be anybody. So imagine this person comes over to your house for a nice dinner, and after dinner, he just quietly gets up, takes off his jacket, and then goes into your bathroom and starts scrubbing around your toilet. Okay, it wouldn't take long for you to get up and walk in there and say, uh, what are you doing? I mean, first of all, I have two little boys using our toilet at home. So you can imagine what our toilet looks like if we're not careful. And he looks up and he says, hey, who can't aim? He says, what's this? What happened here? And no matter what you try to do, you cannot pull him off of doing the nastiest job in your house. How did you feel? Probably not very good. You'd be embarrassed, you'd be ashamed, your skin would be crawling, right? I think that is how the disciples probably felt as Jesus washed their feet. Jesus who is well beyond every single one of them in every possible way, stoop down to the lowest rung of the ladder and serve them. And it's so uncomfortable 
because it doesn't fit our paradigm. What I really want you to see here is how verses 3 and 4 highlight this paradigm shift. This paradigm shift from a crown to an apron. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me again. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Think crown. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Think apron. So get this. In these two verses, Jesus is simultaneously recognizing his power, recognizing his authority, recognizing his eternal security, and so as a result of that, because of that, in light of that, Jesus jumps headfirst from the highest heights of power and honor and privilege to the absolute lowest low to serve the people he loves. And on top of that, I mean, this just blows your mind. Judas, the man who was about to betray him to his death, was one of the men that Jesus got down on his knees and rubbed the gook off his feet. Motivated by his to-the-end love, Jesus freely sets aside his crown of power and privilege for an apron of selfless service. This is where we begin to see God for who he really is. Not just the king of kings, the God of all glory, but the humble, suffering servant. This is the paradigm shift I was talking about, the paradigm shift of the kingdom of God, how things work when God is in charge. From the world's perspective, both then and today, this moment doesn't make any sense. Why would somebody do this? And as I reflected this week about how I would feel if I was sitting around that table and Jesus were to grab my shame and wash it off, I think I would feel very similar to how Peter responds in these next verses. And I'll be honest with you, I think he and I have some similar bonehead tendencies. So look to verse 6 with me. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet, for their whole body is clean, and you are clean, although not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Now Jesus had to twist Peter's arm a little bit to see what was happening here, but there's more going on than meets the eye. We know there's more going on because we know, like Jesus, where this story is going, how this story is going to end, and we know where the story started. All throughout the Bible, God is working to remove the shame and to restore honor for his people, to remove the stain of sin, and to restore right relationship with his beloved people. Right from the beginning, Adam and Eve are restored through Abraham's descendants. Israelite slaves are restored into a great nation. David, the youngest brother doing the dirtiest job, is elevated and honored to the highest status of king. 
God takes the low and he raises them up. He takes the high and he bows them down. He flips the paradigm. And in this story, as Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he is pointing forward to that paradigm-shifting moment, the climax of all of this trajectory in Scripture before it. Because in just a few hours, Jesus is going to be stripped and humiliated again on the cross. He will take on the full weight of our shame and wash us with the once and for all gospel soap so that we can be restored into right relationship for forever with God and with others. Jesus is providing us a window into this new paradigm of the kingdom of God, and he's doing it on his knees, washing feet. Why? Because in Jesus, God is making right everything that went wrong. He takes on our shame and he transforms it into eternal honor. He takes the effects of sin and he washes them away. A slave becomes a friend. The sick are healed. The blind see. The lame walk. The oppressed are released. The weak become strong. The orphan becomes son or daughter. The alien becomes citizen. The stranger becomes member. The enemy becomes ally. The dead are raised to life. And here we see that the greatest among us become the least. The powerful become like servants. And Jesus sets aside the crown for an apron and even a cross. This is why Jesus is the name above all names. This is why Jesus is the king greater than all kings. This is why, as 1 Peter 2, 6 says, the chosen and precious cornerstone, speaking of Jesus, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. This is incredible, isn't it? Amen is right. But now what? Now what? what? What do we do with this amazing love? What do we do with this incredible selfless service that has been given to us? What do we do with this service that has secured for us an eternal crown of our own? Let's read in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The message here is E equals MC squared simple, but hard to apply. It's, uh, now it is our job to serve the world in the same way that Jesus has served us. With willing and humble hearts, we're to be motivated by an enduring love for our neighbor, a love that's only possible because God first loved us, a service that's only possible because God first served us. God served us and he loved us with a love that sets us free to love others 
to step out from under the crushing pressure to succeed or to be accepted because we know that our place of honor and glory is eternally secure and that cannot change. 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4 says this. You can follow along with me on the screen. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive your crown of glory that will never fade away. Jesus set aside his crown for an apron and ultimately a cross. Now we, we are called to follow his example to put on an apron, to take up our cross because we've been given an eternal crown of our own. The disposition of the Christian life is to be the same disposition we see modeled in Jesus here. One of humility, one of sacrifice, one of service. We are to be people of the apron. Not because we have to or because we're trying to earn something, but because we've been radically served, we've been radically forgiven, radically loved, and radically given grace. Because we know, as Jesus knew, as it says in verse 3, we've already been given everything we could ever want or ask for in Jesus. Because we can have security in knowing that, as a result of that, we can put on an apron and we can serve without fear, without competition or pride. You see, you can only run one race. You can run for yourself, or you can run for God and others. Here Jesus empowers us and shows us what it looks like to run the race for him and for others. And as a result, we can be free from pride, free from competition. We can be free from trying to build up our happiness around our accomplishments using our work or our own moral goodness as some kind of measure of our worth. We're free so that we can authentically, authentically serve those around us. We receive, when we receive, this unmerited, uncomfortable, paradigm-shifting love of Jesus, just like the disciples did as they were sitting around that table that day. When we receive that love, we can be filled with humility and we can be filled with gratitude. Knowing the freedom that comes with renouncing the idea that grace can in any way be earned. Knowing that you are accepted just as you are, not because of what you have done, but because how Jesus has washed you. You can be filled, we can be filled with humility and gratitude when we realize that the King of Kings set aside his crown, put on an apron, got down on his knees and washed away your shame and my shame. This is why we serve others. Not motivated by guilt, but by gratitude. Let me give you an example. When you're really in love with somebody, you'll do whatever it takes to delight them. You know what I mean? Let me give you a, a personal story. So when I first fell in love with my wife, I started doing very strange things. 
And I started acting very differently. For example, I started going to Dunkin' Donuts at 3 a.m. just to talk, not eat donuts. I'd walk around in the neighborhood, and if I saw a pretty flower, I'd pick it and give it to her. It didn't occur to me that that might be wrong. She needed those. By the way, if you live in the Wheaton area and you're missing flowers in the spring of 03, I apologize. It changed the way I thought. It changed the way I behaved. I would love to do anything I thought would make her happy. This is similar to the way those who have received God's grace are to seek pleasing God as a result of what we've been given. David Brooks is an influential columnist at the New York Times. He's just written a book on character called Character. And it's a great book. And he goes through all these different character studies. And one of the characters he goes through to describe the Christian perspective on character is St. Augustine. And this is what he says about this perspective. They take pleasure in tasks that might please God. They work tirelessly at tasks that they think might glorify him. The desire to rise up and meet God's love can arouse mighty energies. The ultimate conquest of self, in this view, is not won by self-discipline or an awful battle with the self. It's won by going out of the self, by establishing a communion with God, and by doing the things that feel natural in order to return God's love. This is a process that produces an inner transformation. One day you turn around and notice that everything inside has been realigned. The old loves no longer thrill. You love different things and are oriented in different directions. You've become a different sort of person. As Augustine says it again and again, you have become what you love. So, with hearts filled with gratitude, we are to follow the example of our Lord and our teacher to set aside, who set aside his crown for an apron. We sacrificially serve because we have been sacrificially served. Now, I know some of you in here might be saying, are probably saying, okay, okay, that is a beautiful and romantic idea. But how do I get there? How do I get from where I am today to there, to this new paradigm? I think sometimes we hear things like this and we might already know them, like I'm sure some of you have already heard the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. You might be familiar with these truths, but our heart just doesn't seem to be engaged or transformed by it. We can at the same time know that we have received God's forgiveness and blessing, but fail to experience it in our daily lives. Does anybody resonate with that? I thought so. Well, there's a lot I could say about this, but I just want to keep it simple this morning. We have to understand how heart change and action change can both be used by God to shape and form our hearts and our lives. It's absolutely true that our actions flow from our heart. Our heart is the engine. It's the wellspring from which our life flows. But it is also true that what we do, our actions, have an impact, have an effect to either form properly or deform our heart as well. In other words, ultimately it's our hearts that steer our actions, but our actions 
also influence and change our hearts. They work together. Sometimes we experience a heart change and our actions naturally change. Like the example I just gave about my wife. I experienced a heart change and the way I lived, how I saw things changed as a result of that heart change. Other times, we have to take a step of faith. We have to change our actions and we find that our heart will be changed as a result. And what was once forced can become natural. For example, every year we send out tons of go teams, short-term missions trips of people who go all over the world to serve different missionaries in different communities that we're connected with. So often, really like every time, Kyle, wouldn't you say, somebody comes back and says, I just kind of went because I felt like I had to. And I came back and my heart was totally changed. Because they took that step of faith, God honored it, and through his Holy Spirit, he changed and formed their heart more rightly, that it would love what it ought to love. This is why the best way to start loving prayer is not to wait for lightning to strike you and you all of a sudden love prayer, but it's simply just to start praying, and you will find that you will begin to love prayer. Both knowing and doing are used by God to transform our heart. Some of you here today I know that God is working on a heart change in you. He has pulled you in. He has drawn you in. He has showed you his love, and you are experiencing something new in you. You're becoming more comfortable in an apron. I just want to encourage you to resign yourself to God's leading in your life, to follow him wherever he is leading you right now. Others of you are here today, and I fall into this trap, all too often. And I'm full of knowledge. I know how it works. I know this story. I can preach this story. But my habits, my actions, the pattern of my life, of your life maybe, have begun to deform your heart. For us, for you, you just need to do it. You need to take a step of faith, set aside the crown you've placed on your own head, put on an apron, and start humbly serving the people around you. Now, just to be crystal clear, our service is not something we do to earn approval or salvation from God. That is not what I'm saying. But it is how we experience and share in God's blessing, which we've already been given in Jesus. See, like Jesus knew in verse 3 all that he had been given in God, and then he got down on his knees and scrubbed feet in verse 4 and following. He tells us to do the same in the last verse. Remember, it says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is a refrain in Jesus' teaching. He tells a story in Matthew 7, 24 through 27 about the wise and the foolish builder. He says, the wise builder hears what I say and puts it into practice, does it. And when the storms come, when the waters rise, when the winds blow, that house will be built on the rock and it will not fall. But then he says, there's a foolish builder as well. This is the person who hears the word but doesn't do it. And when the storms come, when the winds blow, when the waters rise, that house 
crumbles. It's destroyed. Knowing and doing work together by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and to bring us into full maturity in Christ. And all of this, every bit of what I've said, is rooted in experiencing the radical love and grace of God who set aside his crown for an apron. So how about you? How about you? Have you received this unbelievable and uncomfortable gift of grace? Remember, because of his great love, Jesus set aside a crown for an apron. And the challenge for us today is to put on our apron while we await our crown. So what does it look like in our practical day in and day out lives? How do we live with an apron instead of a crown? Well, once you put on this apron, you can't take it off. It's not something we put on for an hour here or an hour there. It's something that needs to direct and remind us of how we live in all of our relationships at all times. So the question is, are you wearing a crown of privilege, entitlement, or are you wearing an apron of humble and self-sacrificing service? Are you wearing the crown or the apron in your marriage with your husband or with your wife? Are you wearing a crown or an apron? Do you treat your wife like she's some kind of vending machine, like she's to do what you say? When you come home, do you feel privileged or entitled to whatever you want to do and she has to do whatever she does? Wives, do you feel like you're wearing the crown or are you wearing the apron? Are you looking for ways to serve and to love your spouse? If you're not married, your best friends, your roommates, wherever that closest relationship to you is, are you wearing the crown or the apron? Are you there to serve or to be served? With your children, for me, this is a big one. I often don't have the patience it takes, the patience it takes, to give my kid the service that they need. It's so easy just to kind of boss them to do something. Instead of sit down with them, take the time to clean their room together, knowing that there'll be tears, knowing that there'll be timeouts, and probably one of them's going to get spanked. <laughs> Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Don't judge me. <laughs> but part of that patience for me is putting on the apron for my kids, slowing down, serving them. Your coworkers people who report to you. Are you wearing a crown? Are you bossing them around? Or are you looking for ways to serve them and love them? How about to your boss? Do you walk in there feeling entitled? Are you wearing a crown? Or are you wearing an apron saying, how can I serve? How about with strangers? I love what Hannibal said last week. Who knows what the inside of your dining room looks like? Having somebody over for dinner is one of the best ways that you can serve them that you can love them, that you can bring some joy in a lonely life. With people you just meet on the street, are you wearing an apron or a crown? And lastly, with our church. With our church, are you wearing an apron or a crown? Do you treat the church like a vending machine, here to dispense resources, goods, to fulfill your every want, wish, and desire? Or are you in an apron 
here to serve alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, we have too many people who are upset with where our culture is going, and we complain about that, and then we're upset with our church because it's not perfect, and so we complain about that, when the answer is the same for both. Make the church beautiful. Make Jesus beautiful by being a sacrificial servant. That's God's chosen instrument to show the world this paradigm shift and to bring healing and restoration through Christ. Remember, the call to serve is not about responding to guilt. It's about gratitude. Jesus set aside his crown for an apron and ultimately a cross. Will you do the same? Will you receive his gift and put on your apron and serve those around you in every way you can? Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are not a God who's sitting up on a cloud somewhere, throwing lightning bolts, bossing us around, but you are a God of love, of grace, of mercy, who has come down into this mess, taken our shame on you, served us at the ultimate cost of your life so that we could be free, so that we could love, that we could experience and know love. So, Lord God, make this church, Wheaton Bible Church, a place of the apron. That we would look not to our own needs, but to the needs of others. That we would see others as better than ourselves, and that we would be able to serve with humility as you have done for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.